You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode one, Leaving Home. Can you just introduce yourself by name in, uh, what is your first language? My first language is Oya. We're starting in the middle of the story. Just so you can picture the scene, two of us are sitting at a table in a public library in the Bay Area. It's winter break. The space is quiet, but it's actually pretty full of patrons. There's a guy sleeping in a chair not far from where we're sitting. Morna Shiraja, and uh, this is pretty awkward. I'm talking with a 17-year-old who attends a big public school near San Jose. He has kindly agreed to help me out with this project by talking with me on tape. Okay, my name is Shiraj, and uh, I'm from India. Um, I was born in Bangalore. Shiraj and the many other people I interviewed have had radically different experiences, but they all spent part of their childhood outside the United States, and they've all attended school in the U.S., which means they have something else in common, too. A story about leaving home. It's the middle, not the beginning, of their tale, and each story hints at what came before and also frames what comes after. This episode of Points in Between is about that experience of transition. So, back to Shiraj. When he was in fourth grade, Shiraj went off to attend a 160-year-old British-style boarding school in India. It took him a while, but once he adjusted, he loved it. And uh, there's not a single person I don't know in the school. Even uh, a 12th grader and a 4th grader, they interact. It was so it was so easy to um, speak about yourself and no one, there's like no one to judge you maybe. And the teachers are, because we, we live there, we spend a lot of time with them. They're like our parents, so they can, they help you. They, they become your, that's your second home. Each year ended with an extravaganza, with alumni returning to visit the school, famous speakers, and a performance viewed by the whole community. And then there used to be this um, sunset sensation uh, where you either play with fi- fire or maybe sometimes sometimes it was hula hoop. And then um, and they would watch you either do fire, playing with fire or maybe lights or maybe like there used to be those sticks. Um, girls used to dance at that time. Like there used to be like more than 100 people, I guess. So it, it looked really beautiful from top. The end of his sophomore year seemed like any other end of term for him in his class or batch, as he calls it. And then, yeah, that happened, and then I went, we just had dinner, like our whole batch had dinner. And then I, I said, I'm going to the U.S. for this holidays, because um, it's just to, because my parents are moving, and I'm just like, going, going as a holiday. But once he arrived in California to visit with his family, the situation changed. And then we started talking. Uh, most of my friends and my relatives and my, you know, my family said, it would be easier for you to uh, go to college here. If you study here, it's a good exposure for you. Um, I had no, I, I didn't want to, I mean, my parents left, my parents did not force me, but, but the way they convinced me, or they also talked to a teacher who was in our school, they, he also said it's better to study in the United States because you get more exposure and whatever, and then, then it was kind of my choice, it was not my parents' choice, the way everyone convinced me, I mean, I had, I kind of had no choice. This conflict between the practical benefits of opportunities in America and the deep emotional ties to home showed up in conversation after conversation. This trade-off can't really be separated from a new student's feelings about school in America. 
Decision made, Shiraj had to tell his friends that their end-of-term celebration had actually been his last day of school with them. So then there's like this WhatsApp group, everyone's there, and then I was like, guys, I'm leaving because I have to. I mean... Uh, it's better for me to study here and then yeah it was I mean we our farewell wasn't like we never knew I was leaving also my most of my stuff was um, in my school like my clothes and then I told my um, my batchmates that you can have them as a memory as a as my remembrance I can have that and then my jerseys my I used to actually be a sports person I used to play every sport so my all my jerseys were left over so all my friends had it uh, I, I told them to keep it uh, from me and then they kept it and then after after like two or three months or something they wore it and then they posted on Facebook and this is for Shiraj it was it was so sweet in most of the accounts I heard the process of leaving home took months, and kids were aware of, or even intimately involved in, the process. Um, <laughs> Dobrý den, moje jméno je Caroline. Caroline spoke to me from San Diego, where she's a college student. She left Prague, Czech Republic, at age 14. Her parents were divorced, and she and her mom lived in a two-room apartment. Her mother wanted to make a new start. She, she's always been a housewife. She's always been at home. Um, I've had her for myself half my life. And that's just what she loves to do. She loves to take care of the home. So that was kind of the goal. We were first supposed to move to London because she was um, she met a guy that lived there and she hung out with him a couple times and it was looking very promising and everything was fun. And then um, I forget what the story was. She went over there and um, I guess it didn't work. Anyway, like within another year, she ended up um, seeing somebody else who was from San Diego. So we're kind of already in the mentality of like, okay, like we could do this, we could move, like there's nothing here really holding us. She just said, you know, let's let's do it. That's when she start uh, slowly started kind of cutting ties and everything and just packing and bank accounts, just doing all the very official stuff that took a really long time. Unlike Shiraj, for whom leaving was practical but painful, Caroline looked forward to the move. But her mother told her to keep the plans to herself. But I just wasn't supposed to like go out and tell everybody until like it was confirmed that we're going like, <laughs> the next week or something. So I remember uh, sometime like near the end of eighth grade, we were hanging out like classroom um, in a park somewhere. And me and my best friend were talking to uh, our class teacher and some other one. And I, that's when I told them like, yeah, so I'm moving to America. I'm not going to be here next year. And uh, that's when it started kicking in, really, when I was like, wow, like, I'm not going to go here anymore. I'm not going to, like, speak Czech most of my time. As a frustrated teen who, by her own description, wasn't the most popular kid in school, Caroline saw the move as an opportunity. It was, it was exciting once it sort of really started kicking in that I was going to leave all that behind. I was excited to have a new chance, sort of, at this whole... I don't know, everything, and just school, because that's your primary focus in life at that age, is just to, you know, because you go to school all the time, that's where your life is, to just have friends, to do well. I, I wanted that second start. The pursuit of happiness, as Jefferson called it, is a common component of the decision to leave home and seek out a new life. It's real, it does happen. But other times, leaving is an escape, not a pursuit. One that is intended, initially anyway, to be temporary. For example, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. 
Roya left Afghanistan with her mother and sisters at age 11. Her dad had passed away when she was six. The year Roya turned 11 and left Kabul was the same year that Soviet forces withdrew from Afghanistan. And what had been an anti-Soviet war began to turn into a civil war. My older sister, who lived in America, she was convincing us to leave Kabul. And it wasn't, the situation wasn't getting uh, better. That's the time um, when the bomb rockets start exploding in the city in Afghanistan. The buses were blowing, the movie theater, were, it just, you know, and I lost a friend from school that she was at the bus, um, that she lost her life. It was a bomb. And then I remember our teacher, all of us to her house. We went to see their parents. I thought that was that was very. Um, it always stays with me. I send kids to go, you know, a family's house with a bunch of school just to let them, you know, that we're here. So the situation got so bad because they were start sending blind rockets in Kabul. So that's the time my mom's like, okay, it's time for us to go. Leaving required strategy and resources. My mom had a lot of girls, so the situation that he leaving Kabul to go in a rough route, like if you go um, Pakistan or Iran, the smuggling area, it was very dangerous. A lot of women were being raped, snatched. Um, so the whole situation was really, really scary. So my mom was decided that she would not take all her girls and just doing the smuggling way. If she would leave, she would leave in a, in a flight you know, like a safe way, because you hear so many horrible stories, what happened to a lot of families who left, they, their car would be bombed, because people think so, they're smuggling weapons or something, and the, and the government would blow up the, the buses or, or the trucks because they didn't know what was coming or what's, what's leaving the city. Because still the government was controlling and wouldn't let anybody to leave the country, because it was kind of sign of weakness of if people are fleeing out. Roya's mother found a way to bring her children to India by airplane. And then um, let the government know the reason why you're going. Same usually because India has the best medical facilities. So a lot of people go for treatment in India. So everybody kind of used that token of like, oh, we're sick, we're going to India. They filled out the forms for passports and visas. And then Roya, 11 years old, dropped them off at the passport office near her school. I did initial process of getting that passport. (laughs) I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) Even with their passports and plane tickets, the family still had to maintain the fiction that their trip to New Delhi was temporary. So my mom with my other sisters, they left first. I stayed behind with my other younger sister and then my aunt was watching us for three months and then I got the visa and then I ended up going there joining my mom. The irony is, it wasn't entirely a lie. Roya's mom was not trying to start a new life in another country. Her ideal part was to just stay for a few years. When the war gets down, we move back. Um, but that was her. She was hoping that uh, if the war is okay, then we don't have to go anywhere. Or, you know, she wants to go back because it's her whole family's there, her brother, her sisters, like her whole entire life. Because we didn't, we just basically pack our backpack and left. We left everything behind. So it, it wasn't like for my mom, it's like she didn't really detach herself, the saying like, we're fleeing, 
we're not coming back. She always like had this hope that she's coming back. But if you know anything about what's happened in Afghanistan, you know things did not calm down. And she lost the hope because it was kind of like everybody's leaving. She keep hearing all these bad news, people are dying. So it was like, okay. And then that's the time my older sister, she sponsored us, brought us here in America. About four years after Roya came to California, the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. She and her family were here to stay. Our next account of leaving home comes from a 19-year-old college student currently attending school in Vermont. I am Omar Al-Said from uh, Aleppo, Syria. Like Roya, Omar didn't come straight from Syria to the United States. First, he went to the United World Colleges to complete the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, which is a pre-collegiate degree. UWC has campuses in 17 countries, and each class is made up of students from around the world in a kind of conscious effort to promote international peace and global competency among its students. As I said, this is a story of leaving home. Omar is one of many people whose journey has multiple steps. Also, if you haven't been paying attention to the events in Syria for the past few years, this would be a good place to pause and look up the Battle of Aleppo between 2012 and 2016. Context is important. Omar begins by talking about his decision to apply to UWC rather than trying to enter Germany as a refugee. My primary reason was basically just leaving the country, was taking a ticket out, one-way ticket out of the country, and that's it. Because that, that last year is, was the year when we, my family, decided to leave the country. And we were, because we waited for about five years. And like every year, every family in Syria, and Aleppo especially, was like, okay, we hope that this year it will finish, something will change. You never know. But then after five years, we kind of realized that this is going to take longer and it's unbearable. So we decided to leave. But for me, I was like, this is this is one way of leaving. And this is actually the best way of leaving. Because the thing is that I knew since that time that when you arrive to, let's say, Germany, they wouldn't just put you where you were and you would continue your life perfectly. You would need to struggle with the language first and then that you would be put back three or four classes, and then you would need to start all over. So I knew that UWC was like basically a perfect ticket out of the country. So I applied for it, I got in, and that was basically actually my last time in Syria, that time when I left to, to Armenia. But, I mean, obviously, Omar's parents and siblings couldn't go off to UWC with him. So that brings us to another frequent theme from stories of leaving home which is separation from family, either geographic or emotional or both. For a lot of newcomer students, an American school experience comes at the cost of familial relationships. And at the same time, my family left to Germany, where they are now. So basically, if I wasn't accepted to UWC, I would be also now a refugee in Germany. My mom always knew that like, I applied to the school and... I think she didn't really want to believe it. And it, it came, it boiled down to the last day, like the last, the last day, because they, they left like three days before my leaving. And it like ended on the door of my house. Like I think everyone was crying and they were all leaving together and leaving me. That was like the first time 
in the history of the family where one member would be left back and everyone else would leave. And we knew that it might be a long time where we see each other again. And that was that was a really, I don't know, emotional moment where like my mom is saying goodbye to me and she knew that like to be honest like we knew that something like i i was more sad because i knew that something might happen with them on the way and they are going on the same road that you always see in the news where people are drowning and people are dying out of the cold the hunger and and many other dangers so for me that was like oh that might be the last time and not for one or two of them for all of them so that was why it was really, really hard, I, I would say, that, that moment. I taught high school for a long time, and I had a lot of conversations with anxious parents worried about their kids navigating everything from unfamiliar public transit to overnight school trips. As I listened to Omar's story, I tried to imagine what it must have been like for his parents to leave their teenage son in a war zone, to make his way out of Aleppo, across multiple international borders, to a school they had never seen. No, and, and something actually happened, that's the thing, because after they left, um, so I stayed in the house, and then after two days I left, and I was stuck actually at the borders between Syria and Lebanon, because I was a minor then, and I had a permission, and the Lebanese National Guards didn't really like me, and their mood wasn't really nice, and basically they were sending me back, and the school had to delay my flight to renew my flights three times. And it was really a mess because it was just basically like it was my, my whole situation was legal and the Syrian part wasn't doing much trouble. It was the Lebanese part. And then it was solved somehow we, we managed it, but then I made it and I was, I arrived to Armenia and that's when I was fine, but I, I still knew that they are not fine. Therefore I wasn't fine. And this is when their their journey took about 24 days. And that was, like, I think one of the most stressful periods of my life where I couldn't really have communication with them. So that that period was really stressful. And it was really, and I mean, on top of all of, of course, the change from, like, suddenly taking someone from the middle of Aleppo and throwing them with, like, a bunch of people from, like, 70 countries and speaking English suddenly and having three roommates I've never met before. And yeah, that was like a huge change with all of the stress that is coming from the, the fact that my family is moving. Omar spoke with me from Vermont, where he was spending the first part of his holiday break in his very quiet dorm. His family lives in Germany, but because of the current U.S. ban on travelers from six countries, including Syria, they can't come visit him here. And if he goes to see them, he risks being unable to return. In some stories about leaving home, like the one you heard from Shiraj, the international border gets only a passing mention. But in others, the encounter at that international boundary becomes a chapter unto itself. These last two accounts focus closely on crossing the southern border between Mexico and the United States. You'll hear the stories interwoven, but first let me introduce you, starting with Jessica. Uh, my name is Jessica Prado. I'm 25 and I'm Mexican. Can you introduce yourself in your first language? Uh, mi nombre es Jessica Prado. Uh, tengo 25 años y soy mexicana. And Ruth. Me llamo Ruth y soy una maestra y una artista. Wait, let's try Ruth again. My name is Ruth and I live here in Oakland. This is the thing. Ruth isn't Mexican. She was born in Ohio. But as you'll hear, 
she did cross the southern border from her home in Mexico into the U.S. She grew up speaking Spanish. And hearing her story alongside Jessica's highlights some interesting questions about the complex identities created through migration. Before we continue, let's just take a moment to find out why Ruth was in Mexico. I remember lying in bed knowing that we were moving to Mexico City, that there had been the possibility of us moving to Peru, but that we were moving to Mexico City and that I wasn't allowed to tell any of my friends or my neighbors or anyone at school. And that what I was to tell them was that we were moving to Texas. The reason why I couldn't tell anybody was because it was dangerous for me and for them to know and for other people I didn't know to know. Um, My parents were assigned to go to Mexico from um, the Communist Party to do support work for um, revolutions that were taking place in other places of Latin America and to raise awareness and consciousness and solidarity in order to further the kind of international revolution. Several of the people I interviewed had a hard time answering the question, where are you from? Ruth would never claim to be Mexican, but she lived there for most of her school years. She adapted. She didn't quite fit in, but she also wasn't the same person she would have been if her family had stayed in Ohio. Let's get back to the border. I should note this section of the show contains a little bit of profanity. I remember exactly when I came. It was September 18 of 2002. I was actually enrolled in school. I was in sixth grade. So I was looking forward to it because, I mean, in elementary school in Mexico, it's only it goes up to sixth grade, so you get to be, you know, like the cool kids. You're, you're the big kids in, in, in the school. So I was excited about that year, and then that's when they took us here. I was like, no. So I was 16, and again, it was the summer. It was the end of June. And my parents were deported. Well, so the week before they took me out of school and we were about to leave, I did say goodbye to all my friends. And I, I tried to give them some of my stuff because I knew I wasn't going to come back to them. I was in my, what would it be, sophomore, the end of my sophomore year. I went to a friend's house and then I stayed at her house late till like one or two. I guess I was going to spend the night. I heard the phone ringing and ringing and ringing and... Just hearing the phone ringing, I was like, oh, fuck, it's all over. And then, uh, you know, 20 minutes later, I hear the front doorbell, talang, 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 being rung. And I was just like, oh, damn. And then my friend goes out and I hear her say, Ruth? Yeah? What do you mean she has to go with you? It, it took a really long time for us to get here. Like, I want to say, like, we departed on September 18 and we probably took us a month. And so then I got home and I packed a duffel bag and went outside and my brother was on the phone with lawyers and et cetera. And then my brother drove us into the city to the city hall and he drove like a bat out of hell. We got there in no time at like two or three in the morning. Um, we got to the border like probably like, oh, I want to say like, so we left on a Wednesday. We got to the border probably like around Friday. Then we met with the lady that was supposed to cross us. Um, they ended up charging my parents about two grand per head. So if it was like, I'm gonna say, how many of us? It was eight of us. So that was like 16,000. So it was 16,000 just to cross us all. So that was quite like, like for like people that work in Mexico, that's a lot of money. And I got there and my parents were there being detained and they explained to 
me that, or the officials explained to me that my parents were being deported for unlawful engagement in political activities. And I had an option to either stay or come with them. Because my parents paid two grand per head, we were able to like cross through the line. So basically, um, basically it was just me and my sister in a lady's car. We crossed here with us uh, her daughter's papers. We just pre- uh, we just pretended that we were uh, her daughters. They didn't really check the picture or anything. We just had to say, "I'm American," and then that's it. And then they'll let you go. So then they put us on a private jet and flew us from Mexico City to Tijuana. The- on the other side of San Diego, and um, one of the, what are they called, judiciales, which is kind of like the judiciary system of Mexico, who are immune to any <laughs> repercussions if they hurt you, so you're really scared of them. They're always dressed in black with big black sunglasses. And he said to me, you're sad, huh? The ones that actually got more in trouble was actually my my dad. He actually did get caught in the border. Uh, so first they tried to cross him through the river, actually the shallow part of the river, but like, he got caught with my cousin. My cousin is the same age as me. He was uh, nine at the time as well. So then we, we were already at the border, so we had to wait for them to cross. So we were there probably waiting for them to cross about a week. And then finally they were able to cross the same thing as uh, through the line. Overnight they flew us and then we crossed the border by foot. And the immigration officer on the U.S. side said, Welcome home. Had no idea. We had our passports. We were in El Paso, Texas. So we were there with a host family. I think it was like the family of a coyote on the other side. So we were there probably like around, I want to say two weeks in her house because nobody wanted to take us. It was too many kids, like, because we were going from El Paso, Texas all the way to Chicago, and that's like a long travel. And then we took a bus from San Diego to LA or to the airport of San Diego and then flew here to san francisco and had my uncle meet us so basically we stayed there until somebody actually was willing to take us it was um i think this guy was probably dropping off some um load in dallas texas i'm not sure what kind of load he was carrying but he had a big trailer uh so he took us there uh in the cabin so we didn't go in actual (laughs) that's that was nice at least Uh, but we were in the cabin and we had to be hiding. So basically my parents had to hide under the seat and then I had to um, hide behind one of the, he had like a, you know, like a DG system, like those big speakers. So yeah, so he put me in, inside one of those speakers and I was just like, oh, okay, well, at least I fit in here. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was interesting because like we actually got stopped and then <clears throat> actually a cop that came in and like and tried to search um, just like his load. Like, I mean, what do you have? Like. And luckily, they didn't find us as well either. So we got lucky because, I mean, you got six kids in, in the cabin and they like, and they had a dog as well. So I'm surprised like and, and he didn't bark or anything. So because uh, he dropped us off in, in Dallas, Texas, and it's like, well, now you're on your own. He dropped us off at the Greyhound, uh, Greyhound uh, bus station. Uh, once we were there, we had no idea how to buy our ticket. <laughs> and my mom was just like, okay, you're the only one that knows some English. I did, dude, I only knew the colors, the numbers. They really like, 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 you know, hello phrases, how are you? And they expected me to buy the bus tickets for everybody to get us to Chicago. And I was only nine. <laughs> so it was like, okay, so I, I went to the uh, ticket booth with my mom, I tried to buy a ticket. And uh, she kind of did understand me, so that was good. But I think I ended up buying the wrong ticket because we ended up buying like a tour bus ticket. So that took took us even longer to get to Chicago because it was making stops all throughout. And I'm just like, dude, like we can't even get to our destination. So yeah, it took us a whole month just to get 
just to get over here. What does it mean to ask someone where they're from? If you get asked that question a lot, as happens to some people, it starts to sound like more than just innocent curiosity. The answer to the question is, at root, a binary. You're either from here or not from here. Even if you're being asked by someone who hopes you share a place of birth and is seeking a connection with you, the crux of the question still boils down to, are you from where I am from or not from where I am from? This first episode focused on leaving home, crossing borders, because wherever they end up, that's the moment in each person's story when the answer to the question becomes, not from here. In the next episode of Points in Between, we'll explore the nuts and bolts of school days outside the U.S. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the Points in Between webpage for additional information about each episode. You can find it at CISPisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.